There's been a lot of news this week about the climate change and extreme weather that we see everywhere. Most attention in the media went to the tornadoes in the United States and especially the horrible pictures of destruction in Kentucky. But there was climate change from New York as well that didn't get as much attention, but which is from a policy perspective, very relevant to follow. On Monday, Russia vetoed a first of its kind UN Security Council resolution casting climate change as a threat to international peace and security, a vote that sank many years of efforts to make global warming more central to decision-making in the UN's most powerful body. And this is one of the issues I would like to talk about today with Gary Lewis. I met Gary years ago in Brussels, and every time we meet, I pick up interesting pieces from his fascinating life that include some 35 years of working for the United Nations. I've seen pictures of him destroying opium poppies near Tora Bora in Afghanistan. I saw him training in South Africa with uh, the police uh, service in post-apartheid uh, South Africa. I've seen him playing bass guitar in a rock band of diplomats, and I've seen him fighting human trafficking in South Asia. We could talk for many hours, but for today... I would like to start on that vote in the UN Security Council, especially since one of his last functions, uh, Gary Lewis, was the UN Environment Director for Disasters and Conflicts. And because we both worked on planetary security issues, the impact of climate and environmental change on international and human security, I believe this is the point where we should kick off our discussion today. Gary, welcome. Hi, Alexander, and uh, a big hello to to everyone uh, who will eventually be be hearing the the podcast and the views that we are exchanging today. Yes, I hope so. We we had uh, a bit of difficulty starting this up, and the problem that we have now is that uh, I had to send uh, send out a new link to a new room because somewhere I pressed the wrong button, and the kind of room that we had reserved for our talk and the one that I had announced. Uh, on Twitter uh, was, uh, I lost it, so I had to make a new one. So right now it's just the two of us speaking, which will probably mean that nobody will join us now, um, but that uh, we can, uh, we will later post it and then uh, it will it will reach many people, I'm sure. Um, back to this, this vote in New York uh, on on Monday, I suppose you must be disappointed with the result of the vote, had you hoped that it would it would pass? Yeah, it's one of uh, one of the many things that I find uh, disappointing about the governance of this planet right now. Um, I mean, it, it, to get I'll get to your point about the vote in a second, but the reason behind why I am so disappointed is 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 largely uh, quite simple. The uh, climate change and nature loss, I believe, is the defining threat to world peace and security. Uh, in the 21st century, you can call it a crisis amplifier, you can call it a threat multiplier, you can call it a risk accelerator or whatever, but it is it is the big one. That is the big one, and everything that we that we are dealing with in our daily lives and you know and on our politics and our our economy and so forth pales in comparison to what uh, Mother Nature has in store for us if we continue uh, to misbehave. And in that context, uh, you know, it, it's it's really really important for 
the governance mechanisms of the planet, and by that I mean the, the governments and the mechanisms that we have to, 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 to manage our affairs, to recognize this excess existential threat and do everything it can to minimize the risk that it poses to, to us as human beings and, and civilization, essentially. And that's why this, this vote, which essentially said, the resolution itself was, was asking uh, that the United Nations uh, consider, uh, you know, storms and rising sea level and floods and droughts to be, to be something that would uh, inflame social tensions and conflict, potentially, and I'm reading from the actual re resolution here, posing a key risk to global peace, security and stability. Now, if you uh, have been, uh, as I know you have been, because you're actually uh, uh, an influencer, uh, studying what's been happening recently, news has been coming out, it's quite clear that that is exactly what's happening. Um, but uh, a number of countries, uh, in fact, it was it's really only three of the 15 members, um, they voted uh, either no in the case of uh, India with no veto-wielding ability, uh, no in the case of Russia with a veto-wielding ability, and no in the case of China. Um, sorry, no, not no, but it abstained. And as a result, the um, resolution, uh, which had taken many, many uh, months to build, failed. And I mean, my last point on this is is perhaps to echo what one of the proponents of the of the text, uh, you know, Niger's ambassador, he said, the force of the veto can block the approval of a text, but it cannot hide our reality. And that is the sad thing. Yeah, yeah, that's very well formulated because that's very much the way I feel it as well. Um, and it's not even months of work. This is actually, when I started the very first planetary security conference in the, in the Peace Palace in The Hague in uh, late uh, 2015, uh, even then we were already talking about what we really need is a resolution in the Security Council to lift this to the proper level of, of recognition, and which was then still far away. It was It was unreachable. There were a lot of countries in the West that also needed to be uh, convinced of this issue, uh, the US and the UK were were right ahead of everybody else on this. Uh, but even a lot of NATO countries still had to be uh, convinced of it. But now we are six years further, and so much has changed, and so many countries have pushed in the Security Council for years already uh, that you would have thought that we would be further uh, there and uh, yeah we, we, we still aren't there yet what do you see uh, going to your experience on on you, you have such a I, I just lifted a few elements of your CV and maybe you're playing in a rock band was not not the most relevant in this in this case uh, but I think I needed to mention that as well but from from your vast experience all over the world on environmental issues and security issues what are you most worried about? Uh, where where would you like to see change to deal with this increasing impact of both climate change as well as loss of nature on, on security? Well, I mean, look, there's so much in what you just said that I'd like to respond to. I can I can answer I can answer your 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 question. Uh, most immediately by saying it is up to leadership of, of our planet and our, and our, and our countries and our businesses um, and, and, our, and our religions and the influencers on radio talk show to really up their game on recognizing 
this existential uh, existential crisis. Um, and so, so I'm talking about prioritizing climate change and ecosystem collapse, but but not just recognizing what's what what the dangers are, but but promoting solutions uh, that we can adopt in our uh, in our everyday life, or uh, we can adopt at a more strategic level. I mean, I, I'm sure that during the course of the call, uh, we will come to that. So, this question of recalibrating. Um, and in the context that you that you've just raised of security, I mean, one of the things that we really do need to do is to demilitarize the concept of security. There is there is, you know, when I was at university, uh, we were given we were you know given this pedigree of, of so-called knowledge about, you know, what 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 security really meant and, and so forth. And, and I, I, you know, I, I entered the world of work and I entered the, the, the world of life uh, in a um, in a way that you know, disrupted a lot of what I'd been taught. Um, and I, I consider much of that uh, irrelevant because, you know, what, what is it that, that uh, security is supposed to be about? It's not about, supposed to be about establishing a state structure to oppress citizens and to keep in power individuals who are from an elite and who essentially extort, uh, extort and exploit. It's about creating um, um, some degree of uh, participation, ensuring the security of people and not just of, of states, you know, th things to do with, you know, community security, health security, economic security, personal security, all these things, um, and environmental security. Now, this, um, you, you asked about my, my ex and thanks very much for reference to Rock and Roll Band. That was something that I, I really did enjoy. Um, and I, it touched on a different aspect of <laughs> what, what life really means uh, to me now, um, music being a part of it. But, uh, you know, if, if you look at security um, and the way it's evolved, you still find, and I've sat in many of these, um, uh, in, in many of these forums, certainly in the United Nations um, and elsewhere, where you get people uh, sitting behind a, a national, you know, a little plaque on the on the table with a flag next to it, and the the this sort of umbilical connection to uh, regurgitating a national mantra um, that is, is is focused on you know preserving what they consider to be the national interest is is so passe now, but it still happens with with, with distressing regularity, you know. So you have this this attachment to to anthem and to flag, and you know the delegate of country X demands the right to change the comma to the semicolon. It, it it just it, you sit you sit you watch this stuff and 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 you want to go outside and scream because you know what is actually happening on the ground. I mean, uh, you mentioned thirty five years, about thirty one of those were spent on the ground um, in what people called euphemistically the field, which is just another way of describing people's lives, their hopes, their mortgages, their 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 aspirations, their search for security, um, and and you see such a massive divide. Even now, at a stage, and this 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 recent vote in the Security Council is a reflection of that. I mean, if 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 I mean the 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 the, the Russian delegate was basically saying that um, if you broaden the concept of security to include environmental security, you're giving the Council Security Council a pretext to intervene in virtually any country on the planet. Um, now, you know that's that's the view I've heard from uh, Russian and other diplomats in my, in, my, in my working life with the United Nations. The good news is that of the 130, 193 member countries, um, 113 actually supported it. 
and 12 of the uh, 15 Security Council members supported it. So the you know the work that that many people including yourself alexander um uh, for on planetary security initiative ha- that have been trying to make what is so obvious um an actual political reality uh is is bearing fruit the question is will it will it bear fruit in time and if i may be allowed one last point you know you said that it actually is more than months and you're right i would actually go even further back because security council started looking at these issues in 2007 when they were passing resolutions mentioning destabilizing the the destabilizing effects i guess i should say um of of climate change in many countries in the middle east and africa so it, it there has been momentum but there's a lot of stubborn resistance to recognizing as the ambassador from niger said from re- recognizing the reality yeah, yeah, yeah. I see a few of those years when there was suddenly attention for this. 2007 is, was a bit in the wake of, of uh, Al Gore's movie in Inconvenient Truths, and then the UK really picked this up, and then it, it kind of died down. It got attention again uh, during the Arab Spring in, in 2011 because there was such a clear relationship uh, between the environmental problems and the security issues uh, that, uh, that evolved. And then since about um, uh, late 2015, we, we, we really saw that it became more permanent on the agenda and we saw it more uh, appearing on the UN Security Council. I liked your, uh, your comment where you said about the, the kind of old diplomacy that we see in the world, um, uh, negotiating uh, mm-hmm. semicolons and, and commas and, and whatever, uh, I've, I've been in those rooms. I've been part of that as well in my life. And I think in many ways, the challenges that we are facing on this planet at the moment are so international. They are affecting all the people on the planet. And we still govern this world. We're kind of stuck in a system where we have this nearly 200 countries in the world uh, with our... Mm-hmm our borders as if we are still kind of, you know, 300 years ago or something. Um, would we, would we need a drastic change in, in how we organize the world? Or do we need a change in leadership? And then where do we start? It's once you have a system, it's extremely difficult to, to, to change it in a, in a, in a peaceful and efficient way. Hmm. Well, again, uh, Alexander, there's, there's so much in what you've just said. Let me let me pick up the the last point. I'd rephrase it to ask the following question, and my question would be: Are existing multilateral forums equipped to work towards uh, ecological integrity and regeneration and conflict prevention? Now, you could say, well, yes, we 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 have uh, we you know with the, without the UN. Um, there would have been many more conflicts. It's a place where people can let off steam and the UN's development, humanitarian and peace agencies and operations have uh, tamped down, uh, you know, bubbling conflicts in, in various places. And I would not disagree with that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I take a long view of the UN um, and the, the, the newness of the concept of the United Nations to evolve human history. It, it's pretty phenomenal, actually, that we've figured out that we, we, we need to stop you know, what, what we were doing in the middle of the last century and for centuries before that, which is basically slaughtering each other, and that there are more civilized and humane ways of, 
of interacting. And I think the UN has has represented uh, a solid evolution. However, um, as you imply, you know the the mechanisms now in the UN, the creaky mechanisms for global governance that the UN currently represents. And I say this as someone who's faithful to the ideals of the United Nations. Um, I don't think they're, yeah. they're 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 appropriate. I mean, everyone knows about the the the, the dis- disequilibrium of 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 uh, of power uh, and and weight. You know, where uh, countries that have large populations and huge and an immense amount of economic weight, you know, they don't get a look in um, in terms of of deciding on security. Council issues, and it's largely um, because the the members that are there they do not want to give away their privilege, and there's no mechanism for that to happen. So you have a situation where it, there's a uh, it's become distended, it's become um, uh, you know awkward, and how that is resolved. You're right. I mean, you know, it, it, you you want to see it resolved uh, sensibly, rationally, and peacefully, um, and you don't want it. To, to evolve into a situation where a conflict erupts and then you have to invent a new United Nations um, because, you know, we, we've been here before. We yeah. ought to be able to manage this process. Um, but as you can see from this vote yesterday, uh, there is a, a resistance to recognize the obvious. Yeah, yeah. And also on national levels, um, what I... If we if we move a little bit away from from the climate and security relationship per se, but just on mm-hmm. action on climate change, um, I I see constantly for the many many years that I've worked on climate change, I see that governments um, uh, act too slow, and not they don't seem to recognize the, the severity and the urgency of the threat to deal with it. And it is, in the past few years, it's getting better. In, in, in the past four or five years, I really see a change that it's, it's more recognized also by politicians that, that, that used to laugh about it. Um, but, mm-hmm. but we go too slow. In, in we, need, we, we are in a crisis. And government leaders don't don't deal with it as a crisis. They deal with it as another policy issue. Is that something that you recognize? Uh, yeah, I recognize it uh, as as a, as a fact. I mean, but it has it's always been a fact in in recorded human history. Um, you know, because and and we're going to get to the point about leadership in, in, in a few in a few moments because. Um, you know, uh, the old saying, you know, uh, states, men and states, women uh, look to the future and they look, they plan in terms of decades. Um, most politicians are happy to get to the end of the, of the week with their political skin intact. And, you know, it's, it's essentially um, uh, an accumulation of that short term uh, constituency based thinking from the politicians, uh, certainly of the of the countries which are uh, constitutional democracies, um, that have slowed things down. It is, there is act- actually, in parentheses, I have heard um, that this is an argument for having, um, you know, some form of benign dictatorship, where the benign dictator recognizes the urgency of the climate challenge and can get things done basically by the snap of a finger or the crack of a whip. I've heard that argument uh, advanced um, because a a welter of democratic squabbling 
in in some countries uh, produces essentially no no change at all. But what you're looking for um, are are you know and what you know are universities and or or corporate uh, corporate boardrooms ought to be producing are leaders who have vision and who uh, understand the the existential threat that is this, that is posed by climate change and nature loss and the opportunity for some kind of regenerative engagement with our planet and uh, bring those the vectors to 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 policy and then praxis so what 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 you're actually seeing happening now um is uh is governments being bypassed by corporations and by civil society actors everyone uh, knows about you know um but Greta and uh, and, and yeah. others and, and many others who who, who came to our uh, came into full full profile recently in Glasgow and good for that because um, that's where the I think the surgeon this is something you mentioned Gore Mr Gore um, uh, he, he predicted this and and it's and it's happening but essentially what you know modern democracies need to be doing um, is is and what leaders are need to be doing. I guess can be captured in 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 a, in a number of points, but I, I'll, I'll ask I'll ask to to uh, to to, um, to give you the floor again because I've, I've been talking too long. So maybe you can talk about that in a minute or two. No, I would I would love to I would love to hear those points, but I um, I recognize very much what you say. It's very interesting to see how increasingly business um, is 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 taking the lead. I see so many examples of businesses that actually that 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 used to lag behind. This used to be something of, of NGOs being active on this, etc. But that is we've 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 long passed that point. And now increasingly you see business being being more more efficient and often uh being more efficient than government in in dealing with this challenge. And that gives me hope. And what also gives me hope is the young people from all over the world um, the way that they have united themselves uh, using social media, using the media, and just being fed up with our generation uh, messing things up and not taking any action. And and they have the right to be really, really worried. And um, I I think the, the movement that uh, Greta Thunberg has started, and that, that is now really worldwide. It's it's dimmed down a little bit because of the pandemic, but but it's 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 still around. It's still very forceful, and it has changed the way I believe that a lot of people in our generation have have thought about this issue. Even even though I've been working on these issues for many years, it influenced my thinking as well. And uh, and I think they have done a tremendous job, a job that should have been done by the grown-up people. They should have been, you know, at school and playing and whatever you do when you're at that age. Um, and uh, it, that also gives hope for the future when that generation, you know, in just 10 years from now, they get uh, they get more influence. But tell me of the, the points that you had in, in, in your head where you, you stopped yourself. I was not planning to stop you. Uh, continue where you were. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, I, I kind of, I, I do self-censorship because my, um, uh, my wife of 40 years uh, tells me that I, I rattle on too long and people get bored. So I, I thought I'd apply one of her uh, Im, Im, uh, Im, implicit <laughs> commas in the conversation. But yeah, you, you mentioned Miss Tunbury, and um, you know I, I and you know some people consider her controversial, and she is, and she should be. I mean, she and and I mean uh, our daughters. We have three girls on either side of 30, you know, one year apart each. Um, 
you know, you, you talk to them, and, and they're 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 making calculations that will impact the future of of humanity if made broad scale. Because two of the three have have, have decided, look, Dad, for now, just no way we're going to bring kids into this world, um, given what we know about what's happening. And, and in fact, I don't know, 15 years ago, they're the ones that convinced me to leave aside the, 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 the effort to, to counter human trafficking and, and drug trafficking, which is, uh, which is very, very important in, in my view. But even more important was, was trying to engage in the health uh, of, of the planet, trying to protect what I saw on the ground as the impact of, of, of uh, human-induced um, uh, climate change and, and ecological disaster. So, you know, they, they, they're, they're doing what is necessary. And this, this decision that they've taken, I, you know, I'm hoping one day to be a grandfather, but I, I can't, knowing what I now know, I can't, I can't object. I can't tell them, no, you must, because I, I also see what's happening. And, you know, people that are living in, in, a, in, in a sort of a cocoon in some of the... Um, uh, 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 advanced industrial countries um, are soon going to, they're already feeling uh, the impact of people whose lives are desperately uh, being uh, knocked around by by the impact of climate change and nature loss. Um, and uh, and they're getting on boats and they're, and they're, they're leaving their ancestral burial grounds. They're leaving all the things that matter to them, their families, and they're, and they're, putting their lives at risk in the Mediterranean, across Central America, across the Channel, and, and in different parts of Africa, um, because of, of, of the mess that we've, we've created. I mean, in terms of, you, you've asked me to, to kind of talk about, you know, the what modern leaders ought to be doing. I'd say, um, yeah. I, I think we've seen, an, uh, at least in, in, the, in, the, in the part of the world that, that, that has a, a history related to, uh, to the West and, and, and Europe, and, and I come from part of that world because I, I was born in a colony of the, uh, the United Kingdom, and um, my education, uh, you know, up to a certain point, was essentially governed by the evolution of nation states whose who in the 19th century were focusing on institutions and you know, uh, uh, you know, different forms of governance. I'd say in the 20th century, again, um, you know, in, in, in the European affected part of the world, and that was a big part because of, of, of colonialism, uh, you're talking about mindsets. You're talking about um, fascism, totalitarianism, communism, uh, constitutional democratic systems. But in the 21st century, I think you're talking about citizens. And, um, you know, we, we've got essentially, for good or bad, we've got uh, online ar anarchy, which I think is, um, you know, is a system where, every, where everyone can share or discuss opinions all at once and so forth. So in that context, I would argue that modern leaders should be, first of all, they should be treating people as individuals. Secondly, they should be actively communicating yeah. with their citizens. I mean, the technology is there. So use the technology. What are the citizens' fears? What incentives can you use to uh, induce them to, to, to do more of, of one thing and less of another? What is motivating them? So you, you get involved in online voting, e-petitions, smartphones. It, it, all of that is what modern leaders should be doing. And, and frankly, I don't see enough of it, to be honest. In terms of uh, the governments that they're supposed to be leading, they also have a responsibility to, to do things like 
yeah, like articulating the issues that that, that are faced by society. Um, um, governments should be you know, providing data and policies and funding um, and, and creating, frankly, the right environment for the private sector, which has which has trillions of dollars. I mean, governments, you, t- you said just now, I, I smiled when you said that the, 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 uh, the, the, the private sector can, can be even more efficient than governments. In fact, it usually is. Um, and uh, I mean, w- what they have is the power of the purse. The governments and, and, you know, and entities like the United Nations, their funding is, is trifling compared with the, the vast volumes of the private sector. And if the private sector can recalibrate its, um, its, uh, its means of production, to, to emphasize, you know, low carbon economy, decoupling humans from nature and, you know, uh, hydrogen, renewables, all that. Um, then we're in with a chance. But if they aren't, then we're not. And um, so essentially, that's how I see um, what's needed now. And, you know, like, like, like many people, um, including those that go all the way back to antiquity, Greek, Greek and Roman writers, you know, they lament what they saw and what I see currently as, as an absence of real leadership on these things by those using those, 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 those parameters that yeah. I just described yeah. for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, briefly I- interrupting here, I found out that this app is so new for me that uh, I, may, I made a mistake somewhere. I had put our room on private um, and a uh, Twitter friend uh, sent a uh, direct message uh, saying that it was impossible to access this room. Um, so I just changed the setting a minute ago. And uh, Lizzie has joined us now. So we have one listener. Uh, but it has been, we actually have two by now. Um, I was just saying for the one who just joined uh, that uh, the room was set on private. So it was impossible to access us. I hope not to make this mistake with all my other guests. Um, but of course, everybody can listen in later on. So, um, yeah, thanks so much. I wanted to, um, uh, to move as well to something uh, very different. You mentioned in the beginning that, uh, you come from, from Barbados and that you are, uh, you wrote that recently to me, uh, that you're working on a book of Bar- Barbados. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure, happy to. Um, and I, I, I need to be, I need to be uh, a bit sensitive here because I'm not trying to plug it. it. It came out actually 20 years ago. Uh, I'm thinking of doing a new one. But before doing that, just uh, to to, uh, to give a shout out to Lizzie and Mira, um, and uh, to welcome you uh, along with Alexander to this to this uh, to this thing. One of the points, uh, guys, that I was making uh, before you joined was the the absence, in my view. Of, um, of 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 modern leaders, who first of all, rec- you know, re- recognize the um, the immense race that we have at, at play right now in this century, which is a race between um, the amount of carbon we're emitting and another greenhouse gases, and our belated but accelerating uh, attempts to 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 replace that with with clean energy. I mean, that that's essentially what it will come down to, plus the uh, recognition of the importance of the hydrological cycle, which I'd like to talk about at some point, uh, if that's possible, Alexander. And, um, and, and in, in, do, in doing that, I also said that modern Please leadership yeah. needs to, to do a number of things, and, and that is to treat people as individuals, actively communicate with citizens, 
and and use technology. And so Alexander was being very modest just now in saying, you know, I'm kind of working on this, kind of fumbling around with this new technology. I said it's private, should not be private, blah, blah, blah. But I have to say a big shout out to Alexander um, for being such an influencer and, and, and having the kind of vision and heart. And it's important to mention that heart. Uh, to uh, to recognize these issues and and give uh, give the rest of us a chance and and hello Ada I just see you just joined um, the rest of us a chance to uh, make a contribution in our own way so um, you know uh, Alexander I think that that's something we need to recognize so I don't need to 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 be modest in responding but you thank you <laughs> um, now on the Barbados thing yeah so uh, we, one of the things that I I I. I did uh, 25 years ago um, was to try to do some research on a on a on a f- uh, political figure in, in Barbados who um, he he was he was a labor leader he was a white man uh, in a country which is 95 um, percent uh, non-white and he was uh, a union organizer and so forth and and he was a bit of a tragic hero um, you know he he committed everything to the cause uh, of essentially of of universal franchise, which um, at the time that he started in politics, you you didn't have one one person one vote. You you had, you know, the planters would have like four votes for them, and 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 the lower uh, income people would have one vote. And if you didn't have property, you couldn't vote, and and all of this kind of you try to get rid of all that. Um, but uh, the the story wended its way forward, where ultimately he lost his job. Um, he was victimized by the um, the establishment. He lost his health. He lost his wife, and ultimately lost his life um, to to the to the medical problem that that all of that brought on. And I had heard about this this gentleman, and I started to do you know amateur oral interviews with people who were then still alive and i found out a, a wealth of information i mean it was really a window on the past uh from the perspectives of which i tried to triangulate with the with the recorded facts um of people who not long after i interviewed them and hopefully not in relation to it but they they, they, they no longer uh, were with us um and uh, so I put it in a book called White Rebels, and um, I'm I'm thinking of going back at it again, and with the benefit of ooh, 20, 21, 22 years of, of of experience as as a as someone that you know has been around a bit, um, what I would think now of of what I said then. I mean, obviously, I won't change the interviews, uh, but I may look at it from a slightly maybe a more experienced perspective. And this is all in connection also with the fact that um, the island is, re, is, is looking again at the people who ought to be considered national heroes. And so it's in that context. I, I think it would be useful to contribute to that conversation with a, a republication of the book. So that's basically it, Alexander. Yeah, that's a must, must, must be fascinating. It's not, uh, it's a, Islands where I've never been, never visited it, and I don't know much about it. So this sounds like like an interesting piece of history. Do you think um, talk about combining the history and future, um, and and uh, as well as what we spoke about before, what will be the impacts that that you will see on such an island and, and other islands in the Caribbean of 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 climate change? Do you already experience it? And what what's what's the economic and social impact of it? 
Yeah, well, the impact is pretty massive, I tell you. Um, I mean, we're not at the stage where we are um, with Tuvalu and Maldives. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to use the, uh, the pun, but it's the obvious one to make. I mean, we've got a perfect storm. Um, in 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 at, at play, uh, you know, yeah. I, my brother he he flies uh, with the um, uh, the security forces in in the Caribbean, and um, you know he he puts in relief efforts, you know, in places like Haiti and Jamaica and 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 some of the other islands in the Eastern Caribbean where Barbados is located, and you know he I remember the the the, the most recent time Dominique got hit, he said. Gary, I've never seen anything like this. It, it looked like if somebody had taken a weed whacker and completely removed every piece of vegetation off the island. And so with that went people's economies, it went people's lives, and it went national patrimony and, and, and culture, um, all the historical records, everything gone. Um, and, and, and so we face, that's just one dimension, those, those storms of unimaginable ferocity, which between... July and October have my mother absolutely terrified in Barbados because she's there alone without my dad died a couple of years ago and she's got no one there um, immediately to hand. Uh, and, and these storms keep coming through. I, you know, when you see them on the satellite, uh, there was one satellite image that had me transfixed four years, four, five years ago, where we had five category four or five hurricanes either having gone through or on their way over from, I remember. Uh, from West Africa. Yeah. So we have we have all of that, and we have so you know the, the perfect storm. You, you got you got you know tourism being hit. You got remittances being hit. You got food insecurity, and then the debt that we can't service. I mean, I'm so I'm I'd rather actually talk more about the small island development states, developing states like the SIDS, um, than just Barbados. But you, you, you got a number of vulnerabilities. First of all, your resource base is narrow. It's small. It's fragile. Um, uh, then you've got the isolation. So you've got, in addition, the transportation, communication costs, the high energy costs, exposure. I mean, in Barbados, it's it's not just uh, the it's not just the hurricanes that keep coming through, and we are fortunate because we're the easternmost island in the in the Caribbean chain. So the hurricanes, by the time they hit us, they've not usually developed the kind of heft and muscle that 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 they have when they when they slam into places like Haiti. And Dominican Republic, and and Jamaica, and Cuba, and Florida. Um, so we we, we kind of get you know a grazing a grazing punch, um, but it, it's uh, so we have those kind of storms, but we also have um, drying out. The the islands are drying. There's one island just about 150 kilometers southwest of ours that hasn't had rain for four for three years at all. Um, and so you, you get your diminishing aquifer. But in addition, there's a threat wow. to the aquifer because with sea level rise, the saltwater intrusion into our aquifers, especially for a coral island like Barbados, is immense. So you have, you have that as well. Um, and, and uh, you know, I always kind of say when people ask, you know, well, why should the... There's, there's actually 38 small island developing states in the world, uh, most of which are in the Caribbean Pacific. But... You know, I, you know, people are saying, well, you know, it's just a, such a small part of it. It's less than 1%. Of it. But yeah, I'm saying, but these are real people. These are, you know, these people, the, the families in there have got to survive. And you can't leave people stranded on an island for a problem they didn't cause. You know, um, so it's, um, it's, it's kind of like that. There are solutions and, you know, uh, we, there are, many of us are trying to, 
uh, make make uh, some of our our you know advanced industrial partners understand that there there are there are unique dimensions to being uh, on the front line in small island states, many of which relate to to debt service, which I just mentioned, and the fact that we are not generally eligible con for concessional funding because our level of development is is often relatively higher than than some other developing countries. But those those unique areas of vulnerability, I think, yeah, I think they need to be to be recognised. Yeah, and I can imagine that with the pandemic going on, that there's, there's must have been an extra hit on on income from tourism. It be, it's gone. Um, you know, when I, I, I for the first time uh, since my dad passed away, I was able to to fly down to Barbados to, to reconnect with my mom and the family um, uh, recently. But when I got down there, you know, I, I people they just there's the people just don't have work because you know as much as you. You know, you hear all these uh, often academic uh, arguments about, well, is tourism good or bad? And does it influence the culture? And all these things, of course, yes, it does. But it puts food on, on the table. I mean, my, my, my dad, when he was alive, he, he had a, a small business where he was, he was a mechanic, uh, you know, left school at 14, this type of thing. Um, but eventually he got a small business uh, where he rented a handful of little Jeeps to tourists that came down. And that's how we survived you know if the big silver planes didn't land as they didn't during the oil crisis in 73 and 74 which i remember very clearly as a boy um things got tight and um i you know i i, I then became grateful later on for for a system that did give free secondary education because we couldn't have afforded to pay for it so yeah i mean the the big silver birds uh stopped coming for a whole year and people were in a world of trouble Thankfully, now they're starting to resume and come in a little bit more frequently. Yeah. Um, and I know the impact on uh, carbon footprint and all that. Uh, but people are getting back to work. Yeah, yeah. I spoke just just uh, days ago, last week actually. I spoke with uh, Alistair Doyle. You may have seen that that was the, the first uh, podcast in this series. Yeah. Who wrote this book, The Great Melt? And a lot of what you say comes back in that book as well, uh, especially on people living on the coastlines, where are they going? Where can they go to? And, and on the Caribbean islands, you can still at least move to higher ground, but there's already people living there. And on those more uh, uh, coral-based islands like like the Maldives and, 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 and Kiribati or something, there's just nowhere where you can go. I think Kiribati has now bought a piece of land in Fiji somewhere on a mountainside that if their country disappears, at least the population can go somewhere because there's no uh, legal um, uh, arrangement, international legal law for, for, for this. Um, and that brings, of course, the question that we'll go a little bit back to where we started on. If you, you said it's just like 1% of the population, which is still huge, but if you go to, to the big numbers, if you go like, Northern Africa, it's been, been calculated by the Potsdam Institute by 2050, which is just 30 years away from us. If you go back in time, you're in 1991. That feels like yesterday for me. So by 2050, in large parts of Northern Africa, it gets several months a year so hot that healthy people like you and me can simply not survive. That means that these people have to move away. They have to go somewhere. Um what what will the process look like? I wonder 
if you're working in the UN, how you how you see this this what's well, not even long term future? Let's say mid term future for next twenty or thirty years. Um, what what is going to happen to to these people? Because we talk, we likely talk about hundreds of millions as a minimum in 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 the decades to come that will be uprooted and 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 have to move somewhere and they have to move to a place where other people are already. Okay. Um, again, a lot to unpack there, and uh, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to leave some space for maybe some conclusory remarks uh, from from your side, and, and maybe a few allow from mine. Um, the my, my first point actually gets back to the to, uh, to the to the to Caribbean. Um, yeah, we can. I mean, look, one third of the world's population lives within sixty kilometers of of the coastline. Right. So forget forget the small island thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about you're talking about three major cities in um, in in China. You're talking about uh, pretty much uh, um, all, almost all of the coastline of Florida. You're talking about um, Los Angeles and and Western United States. You're talking about significant places uh, on the coastline in India. Certainly Mumbai, possibly Kolkata. Um, you're talking the country that you come from. Um, yeah, I know. Got, you, yeah. know you guys are technologically uh, superb. And you got that wall, but you know, the, 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 the water is an immense force, and uh, I, I think that uh, we're not going to be able to to withstand that. And then, of course, you got Alexandria in over in Egypt. I mean, there's there's plenty of yeah. Mozambique. It, there's it's everywhere. So you you know the uh, small island states essentially right now are the canary in the coal mine of something that's that's bad that that's going to happen now on the um and and then of course even even in Barbados where you you know our highest point is three hundred and thirty meters right? which is not it's it's like Denmark or something I don't know. um uh, it's like Netherlands actually probably, yeah. <laughs> we we have one mountain we're very proud of it so well, it's three hundred meters we call it a mountain. Right. Well, actually, indeed, and in Barbados, uh, our highest point is called Mount Hillaby. Um, so we, we, we have these these exaggerated yeah. pretensions of, of, of posturing. But in any, I mean, the point is that, you know, even if people withdraw to, 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 to the, um, you know, to, to, to three, four kilometers inland. And by the way, you can only ever be six kilometers at most from the sea in Barbados. So, um what are they going to do? Because all of the economic infrastructure and the tourist infrastructure is right there on the coast. And when, when with this, with storm surge and hurricanes, then when that gets hammered, it's curtains, you know. And then when 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 the salt water intrudes into our, our coral aquifers, um, we what are we going to drink, you know? And 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 what are we going to irrigate our lands with with water that's that's contaminated? It, it just there's there are no uh, there are no there are no positive outcomes here. I mean, in terms of the other point you make uh, about you know, uh, climate change-induced migrations, uh, the World Bank about two, three years ago came out with a study that said by 2050, you're going to have 143, I think it was, um, million climate refugees from uh, South Central America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and from basically from South Asia, um, finding, looking for, 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 for options elsewhere. And, you know, I, I, I frankly, I think that's a massive underestimate. I, I when I was working with the UN Environment Programme, we were doing something that I consider to be actually one of the most 
um, successful uh, programs that I'd seen working in the UN for 35 years. And that was in, in, in a place called Wadi al Ku in, in Sudan. And that that's a part of Darfur where, you know, you, you had um, essentially um, conflict that's, that, that was to a significant extent accelerated by competition um, between farmers who, who needed to cultivate larger plots and pastoralists who needed the, the, the land to graze their cattle at a time when um, the, the drying of Darfur meant that the, the, the 400 millimeter line that allows for at least some degree of, of survivability kept going further and further south, which meant that the, the, the pastoralists had to, to encroach on the lands of the farmers and it just was uh, not going to end well. And it didn't, in fact, you know, you, you, we will all, all five of us on this call will recall the images of 15 years ago with the Janjaweed and the, and the horrendous abuses and, 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 and atrocities. So mm -hmm. what we did was, <clears throat> We figured, and, and, and here, again, I mean, the European Union was funding this project. It's $10 million, so it wasn't a vast amount of money, but it was, it was really impactful where it was. And, and so the, the approach was to, to build structures like weirs and canals and you know, water retention, irrigation type of things. But also, and this is the key point, systems of engagement. So this was like software, I guess you could call it. So community councils. Um, across swathes of villages and, and, and technical committees for engagement at the state level and so forth, often involving women, which for the first time uh, was permitted. And that really enriched the, the conversation and, and the solutions that we were able to find. The real result was, that, I mean, it was an increased, I guess, I recall an increased crop yield, uh, increased farmer income, and the irrigated lands expanded. Now, that's something that can be done um, in a fragile environment. And in the Sahel, you're going to see much, much more of those types of projects needed. But frankly, they just aren't there. Um, so solutions are adaptation and resilient solutions are possible. Um, yeah. Because whatever we do to, to, to limit uh, emissions, we're going to see warming for the next 40 years. And so we better, we better get ready to adapt and be resilient. So there are solutions out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's well, basically, we have a kind of manual for all the solutions, which which is the Agenda 2030. Those those uh, what is it, 169 targets. If we just just walk down that list and we'll do everything that's in there, which actually includes uh, SDG 13, which is uh, which is climate change, uh, we would create a so much better world worlds. But I am worried that by the time that we reach 2030 and we're really going to evaluate what we have achieved in that that's one and a half decades that we set for ourselves for the global goals that the environmental aspects and so the the the, the mainly climate change uh, but well just as bad uh, the loss of nature biodiversity and then and then the pollution i think that environmental factor will be will have become so huge that uh, that's a lot of the things that we try to achieve were simply were simply not possible. Uh, nor did the West give enough money. I, mean, I think it's outrageous that after the destruction that the West has caused um, with 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 our burden of energy, that there's uh, so little money available. Even the money that we promised uh, has not been available. Uh, I think that will be in 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 that evaluation by 2030 another factor. Um, that that will play 
play a role, a huge role in all this. Um, I see that we're we're coming uh, towards uh, towards the end of uh, the hour. We we just dis- we discussed a lot of ground. Um, there's so much more that we can talk about. We started with the uh, UN Security Council uh, resolution that was vetoed by Russia, and India voted against uh, on um, uh, putting climate change much more central in uh, in in the decision making in the UN Security Council and in its analysis and in its providing a kind of lens uh, to look at uh, conflicts and, and at uh, security in the world, uh, which is uh, which is a pity. Uh, it brought us automatically um, to leadership questions, uh, and I believe that will likely be an issue that will come up in uh, a lot more uh, podcast talks that uh, that I'll be hosting, because leadership is, is a key problem uh, of... Uh, why we are so inefficient in, in tackling a threat that has been well predicted by scientists uh, for decades and that nobody really listened to and nobody really acted upon. And now that we start to act upon it, it is often too little and too late. A positive note is, by the way, that I just saw uh, that the Netherlands finally has uh, agreed on a government uh, and we seem to move up on climate change. The very little news I got from it, but I haven't seen the details yet, is uh, that we will see set uh, a target of 60% uh, greenhouse gas reductions or CO2 reductions. I'm not really sure how it was formulated uh, by 2030, uh, which is um, uh, which is ambitious. Uh, that's uh, uh, positive news from from a small country doing its uh, doing its best. We Per, per, per capita, we're a big polluter, so it's good that we uh, that we include that. But I have to read the details. Um, and I loved your stories um, um, about Bar- Barbados and um, uh, and the book uh, you are rewriting uh, again. Thank you so much for joining uh, to the listeners, well, especially to the listeners that aren't listening now, um, but also to the three of you uh, that joined. Uh, thanks for your stamina for keep trying to enter the room that I had kept locked for the first half hour <laughs> by uh, a kind of hidden button uh, on the top right. I had to click somewhere and then to click to edit room and then to click to um, uh, not having a closed room. That was just a bit uh, too much for me to uh, to work out. I hope I'll do better um, in the next interview. Um which should be uh, next week, and that will focus on plastics and plastics in uh, in the ocean. Um, thank you so much, Gary, uh, for joining. And I I hope you can join again because there's there's more to talk about uh, in the future. Certainly, uh, thank you very much, and thanks uh, to the colleagues who are on the call and who will be listening. Um, one thing that I would like to to to, to say is that I talked about it, touched on it earlier. The issue of the hydrological cycle. This is a massive untapped resource in the fight against climate change, yeah. um, and we use carbon dioxide as a main proxy for climate change, largely because water flow mo- movements are are difficult to model. But this is something that we really need to pay attention to because it can help save us. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Excellent point. We'll get back to to that in the in the next talk. Um, thanks so much, Gary. Thanks so much for the listeners, and um, I'll uh, I'll close here. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye, guys. <laughs>